to discuss today, I have on Georgetown's Dennis Wilder, a longtime CIA veteran who served as a director on the China desk under the Bush administration, spent six years under Obama editing the presidential daily brief before concluding his career in government as the CIA's deputy assistant director for East Asia and the Pacific. And I'm really excited to have him on. Dennis, welcome to the China Thought. Great to be here. Thank you, Jordan. Dennis, give me a brief history of, of the U.S. government's capabilities when it comes to thinking about and analyzing China. Well, we in the U.S. government often talk about China as a hard target, okay? And we put several countries in the hard target category, Iran, Russia, North Korea, China. And the reason is because you have to understand the nature of the Chinese system. Everything that you want to know occurs in one compound in Beijing called Zhongnanhai. And Zhongnanhai is a closed compound where not only do the leaders work, but they live together. And so the decision makers of China, the Politburo, Politburo Standing Committee, are all secreted off where access is incredibly difficult where very few people get to go into Zhongnanhai. Very few people have access to these leaders. And the security system is truly impressive. It was truly impressive before the surveillance state was created. With the surveillance state, it becomes even more impressive. So the Chinese communists, all through their history, have been very security conscious very good at security, and make it very difficult. Now, let's go back over American efforts in this regard. So U.S. intelligence has always found the Chinese communists, obviously, to be a priority. Uh, in the early days, uh, the CIA actually ran operatives into China, Chinese citizens who wanted to go back to China and work in the resistance. There's a great new book out on this subject about two CIA agents who were caught in China and spent 20 years in prison uh, because it wasn't until Nixon actually admitted that they were with the CIA that the Chinese were willing to release them. It's a terrific uh, story and uh, the, the nature of the two guys who suffered is just incredible. We see them as real heroes in, in the CIA. But we have tried to have good analysis of China, but China analysis was devastated during the McCarthy era in the 50s because those who knew China best were accused of being agents of Chinese communism. Owen Lattimore was, uh, was hauled in front of the, the McCarthy hearings. Absolutely. Incredible. Right, right. And there has always been a problem with the fact, and it continues to this day, that those who know China best are often those who the security people uh, have the most trouble with. So you have this real problem that we create China expertise, but then we can't leverage it within the U.S. government because there is uh, a feeling that these people may have been compromised as students in China, as researchers dealing with China, 
And, and frankly, I really worry about that kind of paranoia and what it does. I am not saying that there aren't significant CI concerns that have to be addressed, but I think uh, we go way overboard in the presumption that somehow people with good Chinese language capabilities and long-term residence on the mainland are immediately suspect. What do U.S. government decision makers lose by having those people live in, you know, academia and think tanks and as journalists, as opposed to being on the inside? Yes. What what it loses is people with that, what I call the fingertip feel for China. It's one thing to study China from books at an American university, to really gain expertise in the history of China, the language of China. It's another thing to live China. Uh, as a young man, I lived, uh, I couldn't go into China in 75, 76, because we weren't allowed. So I studied at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. One of my roommates, his brother, it was from Guangdong, and he, um, his brother was in the Red Guard. And I learned a tremendous amount from that roommate about what was going on within China. Another of my roommates was a civil ser son of civil servants in Hong Kong. I learned a tremendous amount from him about Chinese culture on the ground in Hong Kong and how the colonial era was viewed by ethnic Chinese. I got a feel for China that I don't think you could get from the books. And I know you can't get it from the books. And so what we lose is that gut feel. Intelligence is not just about facts, figures, the reporting. It's about taking all of that and combining it with your expertise and coming up with a picture that makes sense. And in order to do that, you have to have this profound understanding of the culture and the people and the system. And believe me, people who live within China, and you're one of them, you learn what the Communist Party is actually all about and how it affects the daily lives of Chinese in a way that no book is going to explain that to you. You learn about corruption in China and how it really works. And, and the subtle nature of Chinese corruption, uh, which is not like the Russian Orlok but is rather very, very carefully done within China in order to keep within certain bounds. You learn about the Chinese people's attitude toward their government and their decisions that they make uh, not to defy the Chinese government. There, there's just a tremendous amount of this. And right now, I have to tell you, Right now, we have only about 2,000 Americans studying at Chinese universities, whereas we have over 300,000 Chinese studying in the United States. Uh, that is just an incredible imbalance in the ability to understand Chinese culture, and it's got to change. We've just got to find a way. Uh, what we're doing now is because of the security concerns, because of the difficulty getting into China, the major programs, Fulbright is off in China for now. Other programs are using Taiwan. They're using Singapore for Chinese language study. That just isn't the same. And we may get a much better sense of how Taiwan feels, but we're not going to get that hands-on China experience. So 
those people exist and they write and they're sort of in the discourse, but today they're by and large in in sort of the public discourse in in academia and think tanks, writing books as journalists right. covering China. So what do like decision makers in the White House lose by having that expertise reside much more outside of government than inside government? Well, one of the problems we're having now in that regard is that Beijing has limited uh, the number of journalists in Beijing. So you're seeing some of the best China journalists, while the newspapers sort of cover this over, but the best China journalists are actually reporting from Singapore, they're reporting from Taipei, they're reporting from New York, um, because they've had such awful situations with their visas. And frankly, uh, some of them have been threatened uh, working in Beijing. It's just not the kind of environment a lot of journalists want to have. So. Even that, we're losing a little bit. But what you, what you lose when it's simply the reporting of journalists who can do a very good job, some of them have incredible sources and insights. I'm not denigrating the journalists at all. But what you lose is they're not seeing the kinds of uh, clandestinely collected information whether it's signals intelligence or human intelligence or photo intelligence that's available to the analyst within the government. You know, we call this all source reporting. What the analyst within the government has access to is this huge database of information that is being collected every day by the NSA, by the uh, NGA, by the CIA, by the FBI. And you know, we talk about connecting the dots. One of the things that is most important in good analysis is that ability to take disparate pieces collected by different sources and put them together in a cohesive, comprehensive picture of what's happening with the Chinese on any given issue. That's what we lose if we don't have good people within the CIA and other places to do the analysis, people with real depth and real understanding of how to read the Chinese Liberation Army daily, for example, how to read Chinese documents um, that may be clandestinely collected. Uh, there's a whole code to Chinese documents that you really need to be very sophisticated to understand the Chinese communist lexicon and if you don't have that, you, you can lose an incredible amount of uh, fidelity on what's going on in China. So on the sort of like reading the CCP, this is not something that you can take a master's course. You like, like there's no discipline for that. Right. Um, right. And, and, and sort of the people who have who do this well are either the Alice Millers of the world who've spent yes. 30 years inside or they like happen to be lucky enough to be trained by one of the like five academics on the planet who are doing this stuff. Uh, Dennis, do you have right. a solution? How do you sort of like retrain the world in doing sort of responsible but rigorous peakingology? Well, one of the things that you have to rebuild is what we call open source intelligence. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Alice. I continue to consult with Alice all the time. Uh, from her perch in California. 
because she can read a Chinese policy document like no one I've ever seen. She can understand what happens at the NPC or the Party Congress in ways that most of us uh, can't imagine. And the reason she had that capability was that she was part of what we call Foreign Broadcast Information Service, FBIS, which which the only role of FBIS was to take Chinese documents, both classified and unclassified, and interpret them for other analysts in the U.S. government. Well, a few years ago, a decision was made to dismantle that capability, and I have no idea why it was done. But that has to be rebuilt. There is just no question that we need that kind of capability we have to recognize that the Chinese Communist Party is the Chinese Communist Party, and it has a way and a code of speaking that you can only decode with people who've really built that expertise over time. And you start by an academic training, but then you go on from there to build that kind of expertise. It's interesting thinking about, so like the thing I really want ChatGPT to do is mm -hmm. like, you know, some people want to like, have a conversation with Confucius or whatever. I want to right. be able to load in a document and be like, what would Alice Miller tell me about this? That would um, be terrific. Yeah. So if whoever wants to build that, I'm sure I can find them. Uh, maybe we can, we can, we can connect you with someone, with some investors <laughs> interested in sort of defense or um, uh, uh, sort of Intel technology, because I really think, you know, there is something that's really exciting about doing this sort of work in the 2020s where the tools that yep. are available are way different than you know what laszlo was doing in the in the 40s 50s and 60s in in hong kong where you have to do all this stuff manually and like but now right. you know you can right. have histograms and you can trace a word back over time and you can sort of like ask artificial intelligence intelligence to summarize things and pull out key points right. and and, and th there is so much that it is Im really impossible for a person to ingest. But I do think sort of some combination of, of training, which is going to be required regardless of, of how good this technology ends up getting, while being assisted by sort of a new age of tools makes, you know, if the CIA can wrap their head around it, which I think is a big if, this, this being a potentially really, really exciting moment for more document-based um, uh, intelligence going forward. Yeah, I would agree. I think, I think the use of big data and uh, the ability to pour all this stuff into a system and then looking for those code words and those phrases that seem to jump out and make, make a difference, I think we can do a lot with that. So over the past few years, both in uh, the State Department and the CIA, we've had like these new China things get set up. So the State Department has their China house. Uh, the CIA right. is calling it a mission center. What's the point? Why, have, why weren't they doing this before? And, uh, you know, what are the sort of like challenges and opportunities facing uh, the folks who are really trying to up the intelligence community's capabilities when it comes to thinking about China? The, the point is to make the entire CIA bureaucracy or State Department bureaucracy know that this has become the kind of priority where we're going to put real resources to the problem, where we had some resources to the problem. For example, there was certainly a robust China program before the China Mission Center. 
But once you make it a premier center within the organization, you frankly have only so many resources. So what that means is you're going to begin to take resources away from somebody else to put on the China problem when you make this that kind of priority. So, for example, let's be honest. Counterterrorism had huge resources devoted to it when we were hunting bin Laden, when al-Qaeda was a real threat, when ISIS was much more of a threat to the American homeland. Now, it isn't the priority it once was. It's still a priority, but you're going to move resources from that account over to the China account. You're going to move them from other areas where you don't think you need as many resources and where you must bolster it. You're going to ask Congress for more positions, for more money, so that you can do more, whether it's in the field with collection opportunities or at headquarters with analytic opportunities. And same thing in the State Department. Although the State Department, it's a little different. What China House's State Department really says is, if you're working a segment of China in any of the regional bureaus, you must come through us. We must coordinate this. This must be a whole of State Department approach. And that is different because often what happens is things get stovepipe in the State Department to each regional bureau. And what this is now saying is we want to know in China House exactly what you're doing on the China problem. And we want to help direct your efforts. So in both cases, it is appropriate. It is necessary to you know, moving the bureaucracy has been compared to moving an aircraft carrier. They don't move fast. It's hard to do, but you can move them and you can move them in the direction of doing more. Now, one of the issues you have to think about is when you try to bolster, for example, in the CIA, your China shop and you add people you are inevitably going to have to add people you're going to have to retrain. A counterterrorism analyst is not ready to do the Chinese People's Liberation Army. They're going to have to find a way to make those people more expert. That means that you're not overnight going to change your capabilities. Your capabilities are only going to grow as you grow these people as you find more expertise, as you try and hire from the outside more expertise, although we've already talked about some of the problems with that. So there's going to be a big retraining program of analysts, a big emphasis on Chinese language education. So these things are going to take time. So the new China Mission Center probably isn't what it's going to be in a few years. It's probably going to have some growing pains. And, you know, you just hope that people are making the right investments so that down the line, it's going to be stronger. So I don't know if like at, at some point you faced a decision where you're like, man, I should really just be analyzing the Taliban if I want to get ahead <laughs> in my career. But, you know, there's a there's a counterfactual here where America starts investing in this stuff in the 2000s or early 2010s. And then the capabilities are very different um, than what we're uh, than what we're sort of faced with 
today where, you know, you have articles from a uh, Biden administration officials saying that they're really frustrated, that they can't get good analysis. And you sort of also had a story about a, um, a, a sort of ring of informants that was um, right. busted and then hasn't seems like it hasn't really been able to have been replaced in the past few years. So what was it like, Dennis, being the, the younger brother for, for, for a few decades? Sure. Um, well, let me uh, let me give you an example. When I first came into the CIA, uh, I came in as a China military analyst, and I was doing Chinese ground forces. And that was the day in which the Soviet Union, the Soviet Red Army, was the be-all and end-all of enemies. And the Soviet guys used to walk around and kind of laugh at us and say, Yes, you have the uh, largest antique army in the world. And we did. The Chinese army wasn't anything to be um, commended. It was in horrible shape in the early 1980s. And so we didn't get the resources that they got on the Soviet Union. We didn't have the number of people working the problem. And we certainly didn't get the attention from policymakers that they did when they were negotiating arms control agreements and all the rest of it, dealing with the Soviets and dealing with the Soviets in Afghanistan, we were the backwater in those days. And as my career on China grew, the interest in China grew. Um, and so years later, all of a sudden, the Chinese military was of great interest. When China started to build up military forces opposite Taiwan, missiles, the 95, 96 um, missile crisis, where the Chinese actually fired missiles close to Taiwan. And these were new, impressive Chinese capabilities. Uh, so it does change over time. But I, one, one thing I wanted to add was, Jordan, was the supply-demand issue. And what you're talking about with the policymaker is supply-demand. So the... CIA and others are trying to meet this new level of demand, but the supply of what they have to offer isn't going to meet that demand for a while because they're not going to have built up the capabilities. This is going to frustrate policymakers. And one of the things that is worrisome about this is if we're in a crisis with the Chinese in the next four or five years over Taiwan, will we have built the capabilities fast enough to meet the kinds of requirements that we're going to face. And I don't know. I think that is an open question. So Richard Danzig, who is the former secretary of the Navy, has this incredible paper that came out, I think, a decade ago. It's called Driving in the Dark. And it's about directly about defense acquisition, but sort of more broadly about thinking about the future and sort of trying to plan backwards. And what's so frustrating about the story that you just told, Dennis, is like the, the, the sort of the sort of Danzig thesis, which really rings true to me, is like you can't know what's going to happen. And being too confident in the future is going to end up biting you in the back because the one thing you can know is that you're going to be wrong. But the types of things that you want to invest to that are sort of robust to different futures are capabilities and talent that you can then sort of apply to the different you know, world states that you may end up end ending in. And the idea that you're going to not invest what is really not that much money in having an extra hundred analysts 
put in the decades of work that you really need decades to do to be able to sort of operate at the highest level and thinking about, you know, the Chinese military, Chinese economy, Chinese politics is just so annoying because as you as you said, Dennis, like you can't flip a switch. You can't all of a sudden sort of rev up an industrial base and in six months, you know, retool factories to like, you know, build more munitions. And, you know, you take your toothpaste factory and you have it make, you know, laser guided munitions or whatever. Bad example, but you get the point. That's not how analyzing a country like China works. And the fact that the U.S. has to do this because we ended up over indexing on the Middle East and South Asia and under indexing on the idea that the, the, the second most important, you know, the second largest uh, economy in the world, which everyone knew was going to be the second largest economy in the world in, you know, 2004 is just, you know, it's a real bummer. It is. Uh, Dennis, you know, we, we've had this very interesting arc of history where you had people who were um, sort of Soviet specialists like Condoleezza Rice and Bob Gastes end up running our wars in the Middle East. And sort of now you have people who specialize in the Middle East. Mike Gallagher, you know, fought wars and, you know, has a PhD in Middle East studies are now sort of like leaning the American, you know, Bill Burns, of course, another one, uh, sort of leading the the sort of thinking in response to Russia and China. And, and, and as you were saying, the sort of you know, many of the analysts um, that are going to be working on on sort of China related stuff inevitably have had a lot of their formative career experiences dealing with um, dealing with Iraq and Afghanistan. So what are the sort of challenges, pitfalls, maybe opportunities of um, mm-hmm. of kind of having like of having people with those mindsets be the ones making decisions around um, around China? Right. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I think think, uh, you can see both the challenges and the opportunities. The opportunities are that you do have people understand war okay that have been to war that they've worked in iraq and afghanistan they've seen what it means to watch the american military fight to have covert operations in these areas Um, a great idea of the both the strengths and limitations of american power projection that is a valuable thing, and we have a lot of people with those kinds of experience with both in the military and the intelligence community that is very helpful. And that is transferable knowledge. That is knowledge that you can apply to the Indo-Pacific theater in many ways. The danger is in this that you fight the last war. 
In other words, that you take your experience in Afghanistan and you take your experience in Iraq and you try and apply it to the Taiwan Strait. And we've seen this over and over again with the U.S. military where they prepare for the war they just fought. It's a hazard of the profession that you learn the lessons of the last war and then you apply that to your teaching. But you may be teaching people things that have very little relevance to the kind of conflict. For example, a Taiwan Strait conflict is totally different from an Iraq conflict, clearly. The distances that we are going to be fighting at in a Taiwan Strait situation, uh, the logistics problem uh, involved in this situation is so much greater than you have in something like a land war in Iraq or Afghanistan, uh, where you can bring it all in and you can bring it in from friendly countries very close by. We are going to be fighting at a, at a huge distance if we have to fight the war on the Taiwan Strait. It's not even clear what allies we will be able to uh, depend on, what basing opportunities we have. There are all kinds of uh, dimensions to this. So we have created people with a lot of knowledge on how to fight wars. The question is, how much of that knowledge is truly transferable to, to the Indo-Pacific region? So I, I correct the record for a second. I should get more credit than I did. His undergrad thesis was entitled New Approaches to Systemic Threats in the Middle East from Fighting to Winning. Um, but he did his master's and PhD on grand strategy and uh, the Eisenhower and Truman administration. So, you know, not necessarily to say that understanding U.S. Cold War policy in the 40s and 50s is necessarily the same thing as, you know, learning Mandarin. But Gallagher, I'm in your inbox. You got a welcome invite to the show. Reach out. Let's let's uh, let's chat about this type of stuff. Dennis, let's close with the story of Raymond Ludden. Who is he and what lessons is it uh, worth uh, learning from his story? Yeah. This was a very interesting piece of research I did. As you know, I'm associated with Georgetown University. I'm a graduate of Georgetown. And I was going through the history of Georgetown and China, and I came up with a man named Raymond P. Ludden. And what was fascinating about Raymond Ludden was he was a Foreign Service officer, deep China expertise, uh, actually was captured by the Japanese in Shanghai at the beginning of World War II, released to the Red Cross, and ended up working for the American military command in southern China uh, with the Nationalists' Army. I love how they called it the Dixie Mission because it was like rebel territory. I just, I can't. Rebel, right, right. So they were sent in, he and a group of military officers, state officers, OSS officers, were sent in to learn, learn about Mao and Zhou Enlai and whether or not these communist rebels living in these caves in Yan'an would be a viable source of intelligence, and capability that the United States could use and exploit for our B-29 missions over China uh, against the Japanese, and also to find out just whether they were a real fighting force. 
And Ludden and the team went behind Japanese lines in an incredibly brave thing, went out with the Red Army, the Mao's forces, and came home and basically said, these guys are for real. They are a real fighting force, and they are definitely operating behind Japanese lines, and they will be a source of good intelligence. But the leadership did not want to hear this. There was a real bias on the part of the leaders working with the nationalists. The nationalists hated the idea that we were going to explore opportunities with the communists. And so their reports uh, were buried. Their reports of uh, how Mao and the communists were operating were never really read. They were never really read in Washington. They were never really read by the command. And in fact, they were attacked during the McCarthy era. Ludden himself escaped that kind of attack and had served out his Foreign Service career. But when I think about it, I think about MacArthur in Korea and how little regard he had for the Red Army. And I think about what if MacArthur had been able to read the reports of the Dixie Mission and absorb the fact that the Red Army was not as weak, not as backward as he thought they were? Would MacArthur have made different decisions in Korea? Would he have been more careful about taking his forces all the way up to the Yalu River and triggering the Chinese entry into that war? So my point is we need today more Luddens. We need today more people with the kind of expertise he developed, the language skills he developed, the feel for Chinese culture he developed, and hopefully the new Luddens would be listened to better than Raymond Ludden was listening. I mean, because that's it's the that's the thing, right? It's like you need analysis, but you need people to respect it and listen to it as well. And you know, yeah, Dennis, uh, to be honest, I'm not sure that hypothetical rings true just because MacArthur wasn't going to listen to anyone about anything, much less sort of like strategic design of, of of enemies, right? So we so we'd have to we'd have to build up a deeper hypothetical re where you know. MacArthur gets replaced in 1950 for screwing up the war in the first place or something. Right. But, right. you know, it, it comes back to our other point, right? Of there's, I think, a big fundamental question. How far should you go in sort of respecting to and deferring to regional expertise? And, you know, sometimes yeah. you have overconfidence and you can be wrong, even if you have, you know, put in your two decades and, you're, and you have your fluent Mandarin and, you know, you've, you're hanging out with or die or whatever it's it it's very tricky for a policymaker and even if the policymaker does have their phd in chinese history or what have you these are sort of operating in the uncertainty and weighing probabilities and 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 trying to think through second order effects i mean these are extraordinarily difficult analytical questions to think about which is why i love doing this show to sort of get to explore this stuff with with, with incredible guests like yourself. But th the end is not, okay, better analysis is going to solve the problem because this type of analysis is never going to deliver you the confidence that you wish you could have, right? And so it's like hoping that you have smart, sophisticated thinking, both from the analysts as well as the policymakers who can sort of figure out how to use them in the best way that they can is um, uh, not easy. 
No, it isn't. And one of the things that I always tell analysts and always did tell analysts is you have to prove yourself every day to the policymaker. The policymaker sees you as useful, but not necessary to their job. They have plenty of other places to go for information, or they think they do. And if you can't prove that you are value added to their policy process every single day, uh, they won't listen to you anymore. So it's not a matter of just having the expertise. It's also knowing how to deliver it on time, in the right way, that the policymaker is receptive to the message. And that's not, that's not the easiest thing. Dennis Wilder, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start a flame in your heart. In my heart I have but one desire, and that one is you, no other will I've lost all ambition for worldly acclaim. I just want to be the one you love. And with your admission that you feel the same, I'll have reached the goal I'm dreaming of. Believe me, I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start a flame in your heart. I don't want to set the world on fire, honey. I love you too much. I just want to start a great big flame down in your heart. You see, way down inside of me, darling, I have only one desire, and that one desire is you, and I know nobody else ain't gonna do. I've lost all ambition for worldly acclaim. I just want to be the one you love And with your admission that you feel the same I'll have reached the goal I'm dreaming of Believe me, I don't want to set the world on fire Just want to start a flame in your heart.